Hello, my friends. Welcome to another episode of Follow Him. My name is Hank Smith. I'm here with the incredible John, by the way. Welcome, John. Good to be back. Yep, always good to be here. John, in the four Gospels, we read about Jesus and his 12 apostles. If you're a first-time reader, you don't really see what's coming in the book of Acts, do you? <laughs> There's this character that yeah. that shows up on the scene, kind of a second-generation character. I've heard it said before that Jesus is the message and Paul is the messenger. Do you think we as a church, John, do you think we really grasp how big Paul is to the rise of Christianity? Maybe not. That's why we're here. I mean, how many adjectives can you use? Apostle to the Gentiles, or how many descriptions? A chosen vessel. And the more I read this, the more I'm just amazed that he was put in place for, for this exact time. As you said, post-Gospels, now what? And here comes this amazing Paul. Yeah, here comes this fuel for, for the fire, yeah. I think I've, I've called him before. John, we're joined this week by an amazing scriptorian, Susan Easton Black. Susan, what do you think about Paul? Do we grasp the gravity of Paul's life? Well, I, I'm not sure that we do, but if you really looked at the book of Acts, you've got half of the chapters are literally about him. I mean, Luke just goes, let me tell you about other apostles. And now, you know, he's kind of like the apostle to Europe. He's, he moves the message. It seems that the church goes from local to global when Paul enters the scene. Hey, John, why don't you introduce Susan to our listeners? She's been here before. Yes, she has. And my wife had a class from Dr. Black many moons ago at BYU and for so long, I'd always thought of Susan as just walking encyclopedia of knowledge about Joseph Smith, but she she has written about so many things. And like you said, scriptorian, great gospel scholar. I have, I think, one of the latest. This is Elder Ballard's biography. And because our listeners know her a little bit, there's a nice short little paragraph in the back about Susan Easton Black. She is an emeritus professor of Brigham Young University, where she taught for more than 30 years. She's a past Eliza R. Snow Fellow, Associate Dean of General Education and Honors, Director of Church History in the Religious Studies Center. She's written, edited, and compiled more than 130 books and 300 articles. And I'm just so excited to, that you're here again with us. So welcome. We're really excited to learn from you today. Hey, thank you. It's a delight for me to be back, actually. We love having you here, Susan. And we haven't had you, I don't think, since our Doctrine and Covenants here. I would encourage everyone to go back. If you want to hear more from Susan's Doctrine and Covenants episodes, they were just out of this world. Fantastic. Let me read a little bit from the manual here, Susan, then we'll turn it over to you. Among the Lord's final words to his apostles was the commandment, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. While the apostles didn't quite make it to all nations, Acts 16 through 21 does show that Paul and his companions did make remarkable progress in establishing the church. So we'll kind of hand it over to you, Susan. You want to give us some background on Paul and where he came from, who he is? Sure. We know that Paul, like John has said, he's got lots of names, such as Saul of Tarsus, Saul, Paul the Apostle, even St. Paul. We know that he comes from a place called Tarsus, and it was one of the largest centers of trade there in the Mediterranean coast at the time. 
actually renowned because it had a university. From this most influential city in Asia Minor, here he comes, and he says of himself, he says he's of the tribe of Benjamin. He describes himself as a Hebrew of Hebrew, and as it relates to the law, he's a Pharisee. But we also know that he claims he has Roman citizenship by birth. All along the way, any title you look at him, he's pretty impressive. And his education, actually the same coming there in Jerusalem. Fantastic. He calls himself a Pharisee. We see with that kind of background, in spite of it, we know that prior to his conversion, he's persecuting the Christians, and it's described as beyond measure. (laughs) So what is that? (laughs) Talk about a mean guy. (laughs) And then, uh, you know, he's actually at the scene with the martyrdom of Stephen, and you're like, what are you doing? But then for him, he has an amazing experience on the road to Damascus. I think perhaps we all remember this. You know, he has this vision. He hears the words, Saul, Saul, why hast thou persecuted me? And wants to know, hey, by the way, who are you? And he learns it's Christ. What I think is so impressive is that he has one experience and he never forgets it. (laughs) You know, I wonder, did he write it down? I think many of us become converted because there's something so amazing that happens in our lives. But as time goes on, it goes from the front burner to the back burner. But in the case of Paul, he's always out there and never forgets what a wonderful trait. We could say about his stature, I think it's so interesting. It's like his stature doesn't necessarily match his grandiose missionary experience. And I think I would even look tall compared to, uh, to Paul. <laughs> so we know that Joseph Smith, back on January 5, 1841, at a meeting of what's called the Nauvoo Lyceum, an adult school for instruction, that he began comparing Paul to a, a man there present named John C. Bennett. <laughs> he may look like Paul, but obviously not the same integrity. But you'll recall that Joseph said that Paul was five feet high and that he had very dark hair, a dark complexion, dark skin, large Roman nose, sharp face, small black eyes, round shoulders, and even a whiny voice. But when he got (laughs) reared up and really going, he said he roared like a lion. So I think what we're going to find in these chapters, especially as we now move from his first missionary experience there with Barnabas, and we pick him up in chapter 16 as he heads out. He's roaring like a lion, and he's he's wanting people to really hear him. Awesome. When we left off, he got into a bit of a, it says, a sharp contention Contention. with Barnabas, and they decided to part ways. (laughs) Right. It's kind of like, you know, you look at your missionary companions. I myself have had a few, and uh, the disagreements can become pretty interesting, and apparently this one pretty (laughs) stormy as they're trying to decide, not necessarily, so where are we going to travel this time, but it's like, who are we going to take with us? Barnabas is big on John Mark, but in the case of Paul, he's saying, no way. (laughs) He left us last time and he went home, so (laughs) I'm going to choose Silas. He doesn't get to go this time. Yeah, he doesn't get to go. My take is, as they have this disagreement and they decide to go separate ways, although I'm sure Barnabas and John Mark had probably an amazing mission 
We have no idea because Luke now only centers on Paul. Where do they end up going? Is that where we go next in 16? In their first mission, it's like they're in a circular route, always ending up back at Antioch. And (laughs) it's like you just did a three-day cruise to Mexico and you're coming out of a port in Long Beach or somewhere and you end up right back there. But now this next one is going to be longer. And then, of course, the third mission we'll talk about today, the longest of all, probably around 3,500 miles of travel. Oh my, on foot. <laughs> foot I've done that in an airplane before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or on some, some dangerous boats. Yeah. Should we jump into chapter 16? Sure. Chapter 16, as it goes forward, then it just features this amazing ministry of Paul. He has just been in a Jerusalem council in which they've discussed, I'm sure, many things. But the decision was made about circumcision, that no longer do you have to be circumcised to be then part of Christianity. And so Paul's got a message, and he's anxious to head out, and he's going to head out with Silas, and his purpose is to strengthen some of the branches that he had visited earlier on the Mission One, to share the news from the council that he's just attended and also to collect donations for the poor there in Jerusalem. So as we pick up in the first verse, as he's heading out, the first person that they encounter that we get a name on will then be Timothy, whose mother is Jewish and his father then is Greek. And the big question is, what do we do with Timothy? (laughs) He's trusted, he's a friend, he's a constant, And yet for Paul, on his ministries going out, he always seems to hit first the synagogues. And at that time in the history of then the known world, especially along the coastline of the Mediterranean, you've got pockets of Jewish people all along that coastline. And so the question is, will they accept Timothy as one who's sharing uh, the same news that Paul wants to share. Yeah, one of the things that I I should have realized is that the Jews had spread out pockets of them, like you said, around the Mediterranean. He goes to these places that are clearly Greek, in culture anyway, part of the Roman Empire, I guess, but they have synagogues there. So now he's got to take Timothy with him to these synagogues. Right. So before he does so, and you wonder, tradition, uh, not to offend the Jewish people. Paul will actually circumcise then Timothy, and off they go. You look at the sacrifice <laughs> Timothy is making to be able to spread the word with hmm. Paul about Jesus and the resurrection. But as they go forward, now you've got Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and they'd made plans to go to Asia Minor which is Turkey today, and to preach the gospel. But at night, Paul has a vision, and he sees a man of Macedonia, like a a Greek, standing and begging him to go to Macedonia to help the people there. And I guess what I like about Paul is that although he'd made plans, can you see flight plans? (laughs) You know, you you got a group following you. (laughs) They're impressed with what you had to say, and we know where we're going the next day. 
And suddenly Paul says, nope, nope, we're, we're changing the whole scene. And we're heading to Macedonia, then modern day Greece. Particularly, they're going to head to Philippi, a main city in Macedonia. And it will be there that you get your first European convert. Why do I like it's a woman? Don't you think that's the best? And (laughs) (laughs) her name is Lydia. I look at this vision and the Lord knows who's prepared to receive the gospel. And even though they're missionaries and they'd made plans to go somewhere else, the Lord kind of stops Paul in his track and says, go where the people are prepared. For Lydia, we know that she was a businesswoman. And she wasn't just the housewife in the home or a mother or anything else. She, she's a, a businesswoman and obviously has some wealth because what she is a worker of and a seller of is purple dye. And purple dye, if you looked at all the colors, whether you're looking at a rainbow or you're just looking at colors generally, it was the most expensive of the time period because it's made out of shells. Anything purple at that time was always associated with royalty or uh, saintliness. So the next time you guys wear that purple tie, your your, <laughs> your job is to think of Lydia <laughs> and our first known convert uh, there in Europe. Hmm. I remember in Jesus's parable of Lazarus and the rich man, there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple yeah. and fine linen. And fared sumptuously every day. She is uh, selling the first century Lululemon. (laughs) Right? (laughs) That's true. Could be it. But I think what's interesting, she not only has the faith to believe Paul and about Jesus and his resurrection and to repent and whatever she needs to do, but but she is baptized. And so you get a really strong, uh, strong idea that what's the missionaries message at this time. It's to share news, faith, but baptism needs to be a part of it. And then, of course, she invites Paul and Silas, Timothy, to stay in her home, all her home, join the church. It becomes a strong branch there in Philippi. Pretty incredible. Paul's willingness to follow that vision, that prompting, because you've got your plan in place. I'm the kind of guy who likes having a, pa- a plan in place, right? <laughs> me too. And we're going to follow the plan. And for him to say, okay, we're up and moving. And the Call and Follow Me manual says, the prophet Joseph Smith declared, no man can preach the gospel without the Holy Ghost. Note instances in which the Spirit aided Paul and his companions. What blessings came as they followed the Spirit? And then we can ask ourselves, when have you felt the Spirit prompting you in your efforts to share the gospel? This Reminds me, this whole chapter, Susan, reminds me of the stories President Monson used to tell about the Holy Ghost said, go to the hospital right yeah, now. Go the, the Holy hospital. Ghost said, go to, this, <laughs> yeah, go to this woman's house right now. And he would just, it seemed like he'd just turn the wheel and, and go. He was directed by the Spirit. Good. Then we contrast Lydia with a woman called a damsel. <laughs> and you always think the damsel in distress, you know, this beauty, but here comes an opposite kind of of Lydia. And she possessed a spirit in which she believed she could tell people's futures, soothsayer. All of a sudden, she, she starts following Paul and his companions around. 
And she's now crying. Can you hear this loud voice? <laughs> Probably an irritant saying, these men are the servants of the Most High God, which show us unto the way of salvation. I mean, the message is right, but can you imagine, here's Paul gathering a group, and you've got this woman out there screaming just like a pest, hey, these men are servants of the Most High God, and finally, Paul is grieved. I'd probably say he's had it. <laughs> and uh, he turns and he commands that this evil spirit, which is in her, come out. And notice he does it in the name of Jesus Christ. And the scripture tells us in chapter 16, 18, and he came out to the same hour. So you'd say, okay, Paul, how strong are you in your priesthood? Are you a priesthood man? I go, oh, well, <laughs> he sees visions. <laughs> he casts out spirits. But ultimately, that action which is the right action, has what appears to be a very negative experience that will follow, is that Paul and Silas are now taken by the masters of this woman, this damsel. They were making money off of her, quote, talent, and they <laughs> see that she has it no more. <laughs> and they take Paul and Silas, they take him into the marketplace and take one to the ruler, so it's a real public thing. And they say that what they're doing, they're, they're troubling our city. <laughs> they're teaching customs which are not lawful for us to receive. And the multitude now rises up. The magistrates rent their clothes, meaning they rip them down eight inches. I mean, they're just showing we're very upset with what this man is up. And they commanded that Paul and Silas be beaten. Do you think that Paul had a reason to wonder, should I have just let this woman keep ranting and raving? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know it was going to lead to beating. And then, of course, it leads to their imprisonment and being put in stocks. But then comes the most amazing part. You'd say, if I had been beaten and put in stocks, what do you think I'd be doing at midnight? I think I'd still be bawling my eyes out, right? <laughs> Me too, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. But for Paul and Silas, they're praying, they're singing praises to God, and they're singing loud enough so all the prisoners can hear, any other prisoner can hear them. And suddenly there's this great earthquake. You'll find in verse 26, the foundations of the prison are shaken, the doors are open, all their bands are loose, and you go, we could get out of here. The keeper of the prison, he awakes from his sleep with all the commotion. He sees the prison doors open. Suddenly he draws his sword. He's about to take his own life. And he's supposing, hey, the prisoners have fled. I know what happens in a case like that. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to go through what Paul and Silas have gone through. And then Paul cries out with a loud voice, do thyself no harm, for we are all here. That's just an amazing line. Yeah, what a beautiful story. So then uh, you get this jailer, then falls down before Paul and Silas, says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He then becomes uh, another person that they can teach the gospel to. You just wonder, what are all the different places that we can teach the gospel? <laughs> the most unlikely. <laughs> they said, believe on Jesus Christ, I shall be saved in thy house. And then, of course, they need to be baptized. But the jailer, 
We'll take Paul and Silas to the magistrates, and the magistrates hear all that has happened, and they say to them, go in peace. And Paul says, no way. He wants justice. So you realize you're looking at a scale of mercy and justice, but he wants justice. He says they've beaten us openly. They've condemned us, you know, before all these people in the marketplace and announced that basically we are Romans and you cast us into prison and now you want us to just leave privily. I mean, mean, just get out of here quietly. And they go, no way. And at this point, you see Paul and Silas then returning to the house of Lydia. And don't you think the jailers and the magistrates and everybody, there's not going to be anyone that's going to want to mess with those guys. And so suddenly the church grows really big, (laughs) 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 becomes one of the strongest branches there in Philippi during the early days of the church. Hmm. What a great story. I, I think it is one of the great stories. Can we just talk a little bit about why they silenced this woman? Because what she was saying was true, but why would they want her to be silenced? And I think I've heard Elder... McConkie talk about the answer, but might be interesting for our listeners to know why they would want somebody who was saying the truth to be silenced. Evil can't testify. Testimony that's edifying, that's lasting, that pierces the heart, you're not going to get it from uh, a soothsayer. Yeah. I think so too, Susan. It's the, the commotion that, that this woman is causing, this evil spirit within this woman is, is causing that would just be so that would be so, I don't know, as a teacher, that's really hard to teach when, <laughs> when you got someone screaming at you. Yes. I like how in this chapter, it's kind of like, well, I don't know if you call it a chiasm, but it's it starts with Lydia and it comes back to Lydia. Mm, and then in between, yeah. you get the the damsel, the soothsayer, and you get the jailing experience and the drama of it all, and then eventually back, and you get this amazingly strong branch. Hmm. I think it's interesting with Paul, after he's had just on that road to Damascus, and then he becomes this vigilant person, you've got people saying, well, isn't this the guy (laughs) that used to be the following? In other words, I, I think sometimes we don't give the people the benefit of the doubt that their hearts have been changed, they are a changed person. And they, they've they moved in the direction. But maybe the best from church history that might come out of this is, remember when we talked about that Paul and Silas are dead set, they're heading into the southwest part of you know Asia Minor. You remember the story of Wilfred Woodruff? He's over there in England thinking all is good. And the Lord tells him to get over there to Herefordshire. So he drops everything. He heads over. And 36 days after he had arrived in England, he's already baptized 600 people, including two spies from the Church of England, a constable that came to arrest him. You know, if you remember that the Lord is in charge and the Lord has prepared a people and that the Holy Ghost, if you're in tune, in the case of Paul, it directs him by vision and then directs him to stop that woman trying to testify of him because, you know, it's not a legitimate testimony. (laughs) And then the earthquake, everything, it's kind of like 
we are in the hands of the Lord, and He will guide us. We just have to have the courage, like a Paul, to go forward and to be beaten and to sing at the end of the day. <laughs> not, not everybody can do that, <laughs> but perhaps we should. There's a uh, great story told by, I, I bet both of you will recognize this, told by Elder Uchtdorf. He talks about having faith, being humble, diligent, and enduring. He says, this truth is illustrated in the experience of two young missionaries serving in Europe in an area where there had been few convert baptisms. I suppose it would have been understandable for them to think that what they did wouldn't make much of a difference. But these two missionaries had faith and they were committed. They had the attitude that if no one listened to their message, it would not be because they had not given their best effort. One day, they had the feeling to approach the residents of a well-kept four-story apartment building. They started on the first floor and knocked on each door, presenting their saving message of Jesus Christ and the restoration of his church. No one on the first floor would listen. How easy it would have been to say, we tried, let's stop right here, let's go to another building. But these two missionaries had faith and they were willing to work, so they knocked on every door on the second floor. Again, no one would listen. The third floor was the same, and so was the fourth. That is, until they knocked on the last door of the fourth floor. When that door opened, a young girl smiled at them and asked them to wait while she spoke with her mother. Her mother was only 36 years old, had recently lost her husband, and was in no mood to talk with Mormon missionaries. (laughs) So she told her daughter to send them away. But the daughter pleaded with her. These young men were so nice, she said, and it will only take a few minutes. The mother agreed. The missionaries delivered their message and handed a book for the mother to read, the Book of Mormon. After they left, the mother decided she would read at least a few pages. She finished the entire book within a few days. Not long after, this this wonderful single-parent family entered the waters of baptism. When the small family attended their local branch in Germany, a young deacon noticed the beauty of one of the daughters and thought to himself, these missionaries are doing a great job. That young deacon's name was Dieter Uchtdorf, and the charming young woman, the one who had pleaded with her mother to listen to the missionaries, has the beautiful name of Harriet. She is loved by all who meet her as she accompanies me in my travels. She has blessed the lives of many people through her love for the gospel and her sparkling personality. She truly is the sunshine of my life. He says, how grateful I am for two missionaries who did not stop on the first floor. What a great story. Mm-hmm. I just like what you said, uh, Susan, about the Lord directing the work. And this is the impression we've had over and over is, and it's in the manual, that the book of Acts of the Apostles is more like the Acts of Jesus Christ through the Apostles. And he's directing them. And he's directing them where to go, having people appear to Paul in dreams and everything. He knows where these uh, initial, these pioneers are in starting the gospel it's fun to, to see that he's still very actively directing missionary work after he's gone. So, Susan, what happens next on this missionary journey? Well, as we move on to chapter 17, we find that it starts with Paul and his companions being in Thessalonica. And, of course, as he arrives, where does he want to speak? He's heading into a synagogue of the Jewish right. people. So he speaks there for three Sabbaths. He speaks from the scriptures, but he has an amazing message to add. And the message is, Jesus Christ had died, but he's been resurrected. Well, his message didn't fall on dead ears. 
but it fell on ears of people that wouldn't believe it and literally set the city in an uproar. And people began to say, this is contrary to the degrees of Caesar because Paul is saying there's another king and it is Jesus who is resurrected. And although there are some believers and Paul will send letters back to them, we now have in Thessalonica 1 and 2, right? But Paul and Silas need to escape from this community by night. They head on to Berea. And once again, where do they go? It's kind of like they never figure it out. They always go to the synagogue. <laughs> you know, in other words, it's the first place to let everybody know they're trying to tell the Jewish people we, we've got a message here. And it is dramatically different in the next town. They received their words, and they all had this readiness of mind. And the reason was they had been searching the scriptures daily. Sometimes you think, <laughs> do we just read it every day, even though it's a couple of verses or a few minutes here or there? But if you want to see the dramatic difference between two places where Paul's teaching in a synagogue and then the second place, they believed. And you'd say, who believes? And it's the Jewish people they spoke to, honorable women, the Greeks, and men, not a few. But when the Jews of Thessalonia received knowledge that, hey, we, we know where Paul and Silas have gone, they come there to stir up the people saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, you're forgetting. At this point, you see Paul heading away from his companions, and he heads to Athens. Yeah. Are they just trying to get out of Dodge? I think they're trying to get out of Dodge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and sometimes you just have to do that. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> they head out, and when they say they're going to Athens, well, Athens is one of the wonders of the ancient world. And although at the time of Paul, it's in a state of decline, remember formerly it was considered the intellectual capital, the philosophical wisdom, architectural splendor, of any of the ancient cities. As they head there, or as Paul heads there, he sends word to Silas and Timothy, hey, at all speed, come and join me. And you'd say, well, where's Paul going to speak? You guys want to take a guess? <laughs> he's, <Yeah>. gonna <laughs> he's going to the synagogues, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, always yeah. does. <laughs> always hits the synagogues first, but then he speaks in the marketplace daily. And the chief men of Athens, they gather in that marketplace every day to hear the debates, to conduct business, to, to learn something new. So Paul's message is new. You know, anything time you've got something new to say, and especially if you're hearing it from a man who sounds like he's whining, but suddenly he's roaring like a lion, you'd probably want to listen to him. And his new message now attracts listeners. Some say, what will this babbler say? Others say, <laughs> he seems to be setting forth something about a strange gods. As uh, it goes forward, people are upset. As they become more and more upset, what he is saying that contradicts with their beliefs, they now take Paul up to the famous Mars Hill, where he's going to appear before a chief judicial council. In other words, you'd say, 
can a man be offended for the word? And I go, this is it. (laughs) These Greeks now take Paul up to Mars Hill. He's sitting before the chief judicial council. They want to know, what is this new doctrine whereof thou speakest? And Paul then, in verse 22, he's standing in the midst of Mars Hill. And I've been at Mars Hill. There's too much graffiti, too much trash. I'm like, are you kidding me? This is Mars Hill. I've come from a long ways to see this. But he's he's standing in the midst of Mars Hill. And I, I like the line. He says, ye men of Athens. He, he knows who he's talking to. I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. But then he indicates, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. As the Greeks were believing in many gods from Zeus to others, they wanted to make sure they didn't offend any god or leave anybody out. So they'd they'd build an altar to this unknown god. And then Paul goes on to give an amazing treatise about, I want to tell you about the god that you people don't know about you, you men of Athens. And he shares about the true nature of God, man's responsibility to God, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all doctrines that are contrary to the tenets of Greek philosophies and religion. So there we have it. And But when, when they heard of this resurrection of the dead, some of those men of Athens, they mocked. And others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. And then you get Paul departs from them. But in his departure, we know that he leaves at least one convert that was part of that judicial council that he was speaking before. This man, do you remember his name? Dionysius. Yeah, Dionysius. Tradition suggests, you know, and it's always tradition, that this one convert, kind of like the Alma the Younger, (laughs) right? This one convert, he becomes a bishop in Athens. And even even today when you go up there, you can see that they've got a, a small building in memory of him. I love that he would go to the synagogue first, and that is the pattern. And we know that there, what would he be doing? He'd probably be, as a Pharisee, he knew the law, he knew the scriptures, probably showing them through Isaiah and the Psalms and the prophecies that this uh, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. You know how we, we sometimes say, I want to be an instrument in the hands of the Lord. Paul's like a Swiss army knife because he can go anywhere yeah. <laughs> and he can do anything. He's got the right heritage credentials. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. He can leave the synagogue and he's not going to open Isaiah on Mars Hill. He's not going to go to the Psalms, but he's going to talk about he talks the Epicureans, the Stoics are there. He knows what they believe. He knows what their philosophies are because he grew up in Tarsus. And as you said, there's a university there. So Paul was just amazingly fitted for all of this. And then I love the phrase that they were spent their time either to tell or hear some new thing. And I just, I put in my margin, maybe they've got too much time on their hands. <laughs> they must have a, <laughs> a high standard sit of around. Yeah. Yeah. They can go down to the Agora and just gab about stuff. So maybe they're not growing their own food anymore. They've got servants or something. But I put in my margin, 
some of the things which must have been different from all of the pantheon of Greek gods that they had and all the different things that different theories about which God created this or that or which God created man. Verse 24, God made the world and all things therein. I wonder if that was a contrast with what they had heard. God is the creator. Verse 25, he giveth to all life and breath and all things. Oh, it's God. This God that I'm talking about is the sustainer. Verse 26, he hath made of one blood. I think the NIV says made of one man, Adam, all nations. That wasn't according to some of the Greek myths. Some of them created this and some created that. And he's determined the times before appointed and their bounds of their habitation. Oh, God placed us here. And he knew where and when he placed us. And verse 27, that they should seek the Lord if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. I mean, when you read Greek mythology in high school, the gods seemed kind of indifferent to lowly mortals. And he's saying, this God is accessible. And I love what the JST adds. If they are willing to find him, for he is not far from every one of us. So God is accessible. And then verse 28, we are also are his offspring. Whoa, God is our father. Verse 30, at times of this ignorance, God weaked at. Now he commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Oh, God cares about what we do. He's our ruler. Verse 31, God hath appointed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man. He mentioned Adam, who's this man, this man that he has raised from the dead. Paul doesn't even mention crucifixion here with the Greeks. Verse 32, when they had heard of the resurrection, some mocked, which is just foolishness to the Greeks. I don't know. It's just fun to look at how he would talk to a Greek audience as opposed to what he probably would have said in the synagogue. Yeah, fantastic. Let's look at a few of these phrases before we move on. I like how he starts with them. He says, you're very religious people. I mean, he kind of pays them a compliment in verse 22. The King James says, in all things, you're too superstitious. But I think that's better translated as you are very religious. Yeah, footnote 22a says Greek most religious. So too superstitious. Yeah, that sounds a little strange, but you're, you're most religious. You're trying to be so careful, like Susan said. We better cover all our bases. Well, let's make an altar to <laughs> the unknown God, since we may not have got the name right or something. Right. right. <laughs> and he, he doesn't come in saying, you're wrong, right? <laughs> you're wrong about everything you believe. He says, I saw an altar to the unknown God. You're worshiping him, but you just don't know who he is. So let me tell you, let me tell you who he is. I just like that strategy of... I don't know, is it how to win friends and influence people? <laughs> don't come in and tell people how wrong they are. Come in and, and maybe start with some commonalities. Paul makes an interesting comment in verse 24. He says that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he dwells not in temples made with hands. To a Latter-day Saint, that might sound curious. But remember, these people, they have the idea that you can only worship God in a temple, that you can only worship Athena in Athena's temple. You can only worship Zeus in Zeus's temple. And remember, Paul loves and reveres the temple in Jerusalem. So I I don't think Paul here is saying you don't need temples at all, because he is still returning to the temple for feasts and things. I think what he's saying is this idea that you can only worship God in a temple that's dedicated to that specific God, that's not the way 
That's not the way it works. We don't build a temple to kind of imprison God there. Yeah, I I think that's a good question to throw out there because we say this is the house of the Lord. We know he visits there. We know he visits there. We know he's been to places, but he's not confined. That's the word I like to think in my mind. He's not confined to temples made with hands. And so that helps me to yeah make sense of it. As Latter-day Saints, we don't build temples to find God. We build temples to enter into covenants with God. Well, right. And and to me, that sounds different than what the Greeks were doing. Yeah. And we'll see as we go on that they're making little statues and everything and basically idols. And that's another thing. It's not, he's not confined to the form of an idol, perhaps we could say too. Yeah. That's from verse 29. We ought not to think that God is like unto a gold or silver Mm -hmm. or stone. That's not God. It always surprises my students when I explain in the ancient world, the statue is God. It's not an image of God. The statue is God. Like someone can come to your village and steal your God and take it to their village and you got to go steal your God back. It's kind of a hard thing to comprehend, but once they do, you can, these verses start to make more sense. One thought I've had is that Rome is ruling the known world and Rome has made a conscience decision that people can worship basically what they might, right? And so try and imagine all of the gods that are worshipped in the Roman world. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's just got to be, there's plethora, there's just no end to the number of gods, but nowhere is it seen more than in Greek mythology. And that's the one that has survived even to today as you look at movies and things about Zeus and Pegasus. And we know those names where we may not know all the names of the various gods throughout uh, the part of Africa that was part of the Roman Empire. Yeah, the Greek gods are still, if you, I read Percy Jackson to my kids. Uh, <laughs> and that's, we know our Greek gods because of those books. Look at the days of the week. Who are we still acknowledging in the days of the week? Or mentioning the sun and the moon and Mercury and and Saturn, Saturday. (laughs) But what I think is kind of, can you imagine this challenge for Paul? Because every region of the world has their own gods. And here's Paul that comes out and says, well, actually, Israel's God is the God of the whole world. When you look at the various goddesses, even you could look at Palmyra was a Syrian goddess. You know, we think of Palmyra, New York. We think Joseph Smith. You can find him literally still existing all over the world, although not perhaps clearly defined as they were during the time of Rome. Athens wasn't on Paul's itinerary, it doesn't seem like. He just took advantage of the chance to teach since he had been kind of run out of town. So he's like, well, since I'm here, I might as well, you know, give a big speech here up on Mars Hill. He doesn't come back, right? He's not going back. In fact, as we move on to chapter 18, uh, we move move on to Corinth, and he's going to be there about 18 months. So Athens was just kind of a stopgap. You know, it's a stop on your tour where you get off, you see, and you, you come back. It doesn't seem like he faced uh, any great punishment there. So we're now uh, moving on to a new town, and it will be here that we see Paul begins to work his trade. 
And you'd say, well, did he pick up stuff at Lydia's house? Did he learn how to make purple dye? And you go, I don't think so, unless he's now going <laughs> to start using yeah. it in his tents, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> but he becomes a, a, a tent, tent maker. Mm-hmm. Yep. He makes uh, two great friends there, Priscilla and her companion, who I think it's interesting that you'd say both of them had lately come from Italy, and they were then commanded by the Emperor Claudius, who commanded all Jews were to depart from Rome. And you go, wait a minute. (laughs) I thought there could be Jews everywhere. We could have pockets of them all around the Mediterranean, the known world. But suddenly there, the Jews are being kicked out of Rome. So here, here Paul comes again. And you'd say, well, where does he go to teach? And he always goes goes to the synagogue. (laughs) synagogue. Yeah. And it was kind of like that with early missionaries in the church. It used to be in any small town as missionaries would go from place to place. They'd always speak at the schoolhouse because the schoolhouse on Sunday, that's where the churches met. You know, maybe the Presbyterians are there for one hour and then here come the Congregationalists and others. But in the case of Paul, he's showing up at the synagogue. And at this point, he speaks and speaks. (laughs) It says every Sabbath. And then finally, as they continue to oppose him, Paul has had it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's like I've been beaten. I've been put in prison. (laughs) I've been taken before the council up on Mars Hill. Now I come to you. I think everything's going to be good. I'm making my own living as a tent maker. And suddenly he sees them saying he's blaspheming. He shakes his raiment, which means your blood be on your own heads. He goes, I'm clean. (laughs) And then he says, from henceforth, I will go into the Gentiles, meaning, hey, you Jewish people, you're no longer my top priority. <laughs> yeah. I, I may still show up on in synagogues on occasion, but I'm I'm spreading my wings. <laughs> I'm gonna give uh, other people a chance. I don't think they're gonna treat me like you're you've been treating me. Oh, that's that's interesting. He's I, I can't do this anymore. I cannot I cannot argue with Jews about Jesus anymore. <laughs> Please join us for part two of this podcast.